Anne and I are big fans of Horizon Theater in Little Five Points. And um, just last weekend, on Saturday, we went to see their annual holiday Christmas show, which this year they did in conjunction with Dad's Garage, Dad's Garage being the, the improv uh, comedy group. And so they did an improv holiday show together called Yalmark. And they didn't pay me to say any of this, by the way, not that I would turn it down, but uh, this is a free advertisement and I would encourage you to go check it out if you like. It's an improv show in which the performers are all working together to create a heartwarming, hallmarky, you know, made-for-TV kind of movie on the spot. And the lead uh, actor, this guy here, Topher Payne, is in real life a screenwriter who writes actual heartwarming, hallmarky, made-for-TV movies, and he's there sort of orchestrating the whole thing. But none of them have any idea what's going to happen and the story and the scenario and everything that they're going to concoct together. It all happens in the moment. And as you may know, the key thing about improv, one of the, the, the main rule of improv, actually, is that all the performers have to agree with everything that the other performer does. It's called the yes and rule. Whatever one performer does, the others have to work with it. They have to roll with that. No matter how crazy or, or zany or how many curveballs they throw, no actor can go, no, sorry. Now, what you just said, what you did, that's not going to work for me. I think we need to do something else. No, no, no. They have to keep on working and rolling with whatever, uh, whatever happens. They have to totally trust trust the process, trust each other, and trust their own skills and wit and thinking on their feet. So the result is not only ingenious and just wildly funny, but it's also really inspiring to see what they create together. Well, speaking of trust, two days later, I found myself on Monday, sitting and talking with my spiritual director. A spiritual director is sort of like a therapist, but one who angles everything in your life experience around spiritual matters or spiritual questions. And we were discussing what the church, this church, any church, truly needs from its pastor. Now, the reason we were discussing this is that I, as a pastor, easily fall into the trap of thinking that whatever happens in the life of the church happens because it's me. It's my, it's my responsibility to make it happen. It's my responsibility to encourage or inspire, sometimes push the congregation to make happen what it dreams or what it wants or what it decides or what it plans to happen. And if it doesn't happen, that means that I, therefore, was not an inspiring, successful leader, which is really crappy. Like, that is just a really bad mindset for a pastor to have, but I often find myself, full disclosure, <laughs> falling into that sort of perspective. So as my spiritual director and I were, were probing this question, what does a church, any church, really need from its pastor? It's probably not what I just described. Well, then, what is it? And I realized that a better question is actually, what is God trying to teach me 
in church ministry? What am I supposed to learn? Why am I doing this work? What is God trying to teach me in the midst of me loving and serving a church? And the answer to that question came almost immediately. I am here to learn to trust, to trust God, to trust my heart, to trust others, to be open and receptive to whatever is present in the moment. In short, I'm here to learn how to dance with the Spirit in this wonderful improvisational thing we call church. And that prompted a question, the answer to the first question, what does a church need most from its pastor? Well, maybe what a church most needs from the pastor is a pastor who is learning to trust in deeper and deeper ways. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, a pastor trusting God, isn't that kind of basic? Like, shouldn't you have covered that already? <laughs> Wasn't that like covered on day one of seminary pastor school? Well, yes, of course, this is not like a new revelation to me, but occasionally I have to remind myself that that's actually my job and what I think churches truly need from the pastor. Now, with all due respect to the jolly old elf, I'm not too sure Santa Claus really helps us understand who God is, much less how to trust God. I wonder how many people consciously or unconsciously conceive of God as sort of like Santa Claus, an old white guy sitting up in the clouds on his throne in heaven looking down to see who's naughty and who's nice, who's behaving and who isn't behaving, making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice, all that. And like many kids, I often found myself every December wondering, well, what list am I on? You know, and feeling this like anxiety and this pressure, which my parents would just add to by saying, hey, Santa's watching, be careful, you know, just, just to keep me in line. And my brother would get in on the act. You know, he would punch me or he'd do something mean. And as I rose up to retaliate, he'd be like, Santa's watching. Just because Santa's watching. I was like, was he watching you too? But no, he, uh, he was over Santa Claus at that point and it was, it was all about me. Well, today, kids don't have to wonder what list they're on. All we have to do now is go to Santa's website, www.claws.com, and find out what list we are on. So I checked this week, and, uh, and here's what it said about me. It says, nice, oh, we're having some issues here. Nice, but has room for improvement. <laughs> Could be a better listener. I I'm sure that's true. Has a kind heart. Oh, thank you very much. Often sets a good example for others. Thank goodness. Was very nice last Saturday. Just last Saturday? I don't even remember what happened last Saturday. Hopefully, we'll keep up the good work. Hopefully. Do you hear the little threat in that word? Hopefully, we'll keep up. I mean, this is a very stressful, uh, fear-based way to live, wondering if you have done enough, if you are enough, if you've, if you've covered your bases to earn God's favor. I don't think that really equips us 
for trusting God so much as stressing out about one's status before God. And I, for all the, the joy that comes with Santa Claus, sometimes I think that training in our own lives and our culture has skewed our understanding of who God is and how God works. Now, granted, there are a few moments in Scripture where we can find the God character appearing to be in the business of doling out rewards or punishments, but what the Holy One is actually interested in on the whole throughout Scripture is only two things. Two things. And, and you can write this down if you want, but you probably don't need to because it's really easy to remember. Are you ready? The main thing that God is interested in in Scripture is for people to have faith or to trust, which is synonymous. Faith and trust are synonymous. That's number one. Number two, we're told over and over again to move away from fear toward love. Moving away from fear toward love. In fact, the most common phrase, sentence, instruction in the Bible, the thing we hear over and over again more than anything else is do not be afraid. The Bible says that more than anything else. Do not be afraid. And the next step is move from fear towards love. That's it. Have faith or trust and move from fear toward love. That's the whole deal. Nothing in there about naughty or nice rewards or punishments, maybe because learning to trust and moving from fear towards love is its own reward and failing to do those things, living in fear and trying to be in control just naturally leads to us being pretty dang miserable. Miserable is exactly where we find Joseph in our text today. He is tossing and turning over the news that his fiance, the one who would be his life partner, the one who would help him raise a family and carry on his name, has been found pregnant before the wedding without his participation. A fiance who was expecting was a real curveball he was not expecting. And he was not about to roll with that. On the other hand, Joseph had the law on his side. The law was clear about what happened when a man found that his betrothed was already with child. The ancient world was very serious about betrothal. Legally, you were already considered bound to one another, and there was no easy way to get out of that except for cases of adultery and infidelity. The book of Deuteronomy declares that the death penalty is an appropriate punishment and response to infidelity. Well, by the time of Jesus, where we are in our text, it appears that some of those rules on infidelity might have softened just a little bit because instead of death, the punishment was a formal public renunciation and denunciation of the woman. A ritual that would have shamed Mary and her entire family for the rest of their lives. Anyway, Joseph declined 
that opportunity to justify himself by shaming Mary with a self-righteous explication, public listing of her wrongs. Maybe he had written this in his head, you know, a, a hundred times, casting himself as the, the moral exemplar and Mary as the depraved and unworthy, inf- unfaithful person. And yet, even before the angel visits him in a dream, Joseph revived, re- resolved to improvise for Mary's sake. He resolved to break it off quietly. The gospel says Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame and resolve to divorce her quietly, which suggests that maybe he really did love her. Nevertheless, Joseph looked at the situation of a pregnant fiance and did not respond like an improv actor with a yes and. He said instead, hell no. That's not what I want. That's not what I bargained for. That's not what I signed up for. No way, no thanks, I'm moving on. He's hurt, he's angry, he's afraid. And that's when the angel shows up and says, Joseph, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go with it, roll with it. Take the curveball, embrace it, trust and love, trust and love. I really wish the Gospels shared something about the role Joseph played in the life of young Jesus. We don't know if Joseph lived long enough to teach Jesus about carpentry or much about anything because after the story, he just kind of falls right off the map of the narrative. But what we do know is that the fearless love Jesus talked about The love that he lived for, the love that he died for, was just that kind of rule-changing, sheltering, protecting, guiding love that Joseph demonstrated. In other words, if we ever wonder where Jesus got his compassionate heart and his habit for erring on the side of mercy over judgment, it might have come as much from his earthly father as from his heavenly father. And we could all, maybe, take a note. The second invitation we might take from this text is to learn how to improvise. When life throws us a curveball, even one we really don't want, to roll with it, to accept it, to embrace it, to even say, Yes, but not only yes, a passive yes, but a yes and, which invites us to add our own creative angle or spin to this new situation that's popped up. And this season gives us plenty of opportunities to do that because something is bound to go wrong with our Christmas plans, right? It's just ripe for opportunity for something to not go exactly the way we plan, want, or anticipate. And I'm not just talking about all the usual stuff, but COVID might rear its ugly head again in our family and thwart what we had hoped to do with our loved ones. Regardless, we're invited in this text and throughout Scripture to trust, to have faith, to notice when that fear or anxiety comes up, and to turn instead toward love. 
Because that is what Christmas is really all about. Amen.